hello and welcome to passing the baton number 15 and the title of this one is should a christian support capital punishment and the scripture i've started with is judges 21 25 where right at the end of judges it says every man did what was his, what was right in his own eyes we're looking at some a thorny issues that often the church doesn't address these days but I feel in these end times there is a need um, that God would have us address things that we don't normally look at and capital punishment is one of those it usually um, generates more heat than light but we'll be looking at the scriptures to see what they say to us and what God says about capital punishment First of all, I want to share with you something that I saw on the news this week, uh, on my computer news, that is. Uh, on the Saturday, the 21st of June, this heading came up. Criminals can potentially walk free. Criminals could walk free from prison because of potentially disastrous ruling by the law lords, according to a senior police officer. The ruling now gives defendants the legal right to know the identity of witnesses who testify anonymously against them. John Yates, Assistant Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, said the move was potentially disastrous and police believe up to 40 murderers and serious criminals in London alone could now appeal and could walk free if the witnesses refused to reveal their identity in a retrial. Mr Yates said in a newspaper, this is potentially disastrous. A lot of good work is being undone and this will play out so badly in terms of those we're trying to reach out in communities. It almost feels like we have broken our word. To see clearly, clearly guilty people walking free is just awful. Special measures are only used in the most extreme cases which means that these are our most dangerous criminals, people who have been jailed for up to 40 years, and they could be walking free. His comments come after Ian Davis' double murder conviction was recently overthrown by the law lords. Davis was convicted of killing two men in a shooting at a flat in Hackney, East London, on New Year's Day in 2002. Seven witnesses at the trial in May 2004 claimed to be in fear for their lives if it became known that they had given evidence against Davis. Trial Judge David Paget QC allowed witnesses on anonymity in order to persuade them to give evidence against the accused. Lord Bingham said that without the evidence of the three witnesses, Davis would not have been convicted. But he later ruled... I feel bound to conclude that the protective measures imposed by the court in this case hampered the conduct of the defence in a manner and to an extent which was unlawful and rendered the trial unfair. He, with four other law lords, sent the case back to the Court of Appeal, which was asked to quash the conviction and decide whether to order a retrial if an application was made by the prosecution. I will let that stand. So we looked at biblical submission earlier in the year when we examined five specific areas of submission. We looked at submission to God, submission to Christ, 
submission within the family, i.e. husband, wife, children, submission to authorities, that's to the government, and submission to leadership in the church. We came to the conclusion that unless we were submitted to God, we would not submit to anyone else except in an ungodly way. Unless Jesus is Lord as well as Saviour, we only have half a gospel, and submission, even to the laws of the land, will be difficult for us. If you accept Jesus as Lord, then you must do what he says, and not what I or anyone else says. If we see God's authority over us, then we have to obey those in authority over us in society. We saw this when we looked at biblical submission. You cannot say you are a Christian and not obey the law of the land. Romans 13 lays this out very clearly. As God is in control, it's really under him we are submitted and prayer is the most powerful weapon we have. If we have a confrontation facing us between what society says on one hand and what the Word of God says on the other, we have to choose who we will believe, which will govern how we will act. Who has the greater authority, God or society? Before we start to examine the pros and cons of capital punishment, we need to see the principles of anarchy and rebellion. The Bible gives us loads of accounts of anarchy and rebellion. Rebellion, or foolishness, it says, is bound up in the heart of the child. Now there's a thing. But the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs 22:15. What price those who don't agree with discipline for their children? They are actually breeding the next generation of anarchists. The consequence of anarchy and rebellion is unhappiness. The last word in the book of Judges are, every man did what he thought was right in his own eyes. This nation, Israel, had set aside God's laws and had followed the devices and desires of their own hearts with disastrous consequences. What God is looking for is obedience and if we obey, obey him there will be blessing, guaranteed. Let's just have a look at the result of anarchy and rebellion because the accounts in the Bible are there to show us what will happen if we rebel against God. 1 Samuel 10, 1-7 and we find God saying to uh, Samuel, anoint Saul as king. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, his being Saul, and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Selsa. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found, and now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you should go forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that you should come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come on you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. 
unless it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands for you, demands for God is with you. And then 1 Samuel 10 verse 8, You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shall you wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. Here then Samuel gives Saul a specific instruction. Wait, I will come to you, I will offer, I will show you what to do. Subsequently, as we know in chapter 13 verses 11 and 12, we find Saul failing this test of obedience. The people deserted him because they were afraid and he waited seven days but Samuel didn't come, so he took the law into his own hands. When Samuel arrives, he says this, When I saw that the people had scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. This act of disobedience cost him the throne. He was being tested and he didn't realise it. Our obedience isn't tested when things are going well. Our true obedience to God is tested when things are going just wrong and we don't agree with what God is allowing in our lives or even if we straightforward don't agree with what the Word of God says on any particular subject because we have our own ideas about it. Saul's disobedience lost the throne. He had his own ideas. If Saul had been obedient, then Jesus would have been a Benjamite instead of coming from the line of Judah. Saul lost everything because of his disobedience. Our love for God which we profess is shown by our obedience to him. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. You'll do what I say. To accept that we are all rebels at heart is more difficult for some of us than others. If you resist the truth of the total depravity of mankind, you're doing yourself a disservice and a truly submissive heart to God will not be yours without struggle and pain. In our study on biblical submission, passing the baton number 12, I said we must first consider the inerrancy of the Bible, the Word of God. If we belong to the camp which says that was just Paul's opinion or I don't believe the creation account or creation is not incompatible with evolution, I don't agree with that, what about this or that or whatever, we're already putting ourselves and our understanding above the revealed Word of God. We are exalting our understanding above the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 5 and incidentally we put ourselves on the wrong side of God. So we need to settle it at the outset. The maker's instructions contained in this book are for us, all of them. Genesis to Maps. A scripture for that statement is in 2 Timothy 3 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally God breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or an Old Testament scripture, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 
It's also found in Matthew 4.4 and Luke 4.4. When God says something once, he means it, but when he says it three times or more, he really means it. So watch out. If you have trouble and difficulty accepting God, man's total rebellion towards God, have a look sometime at Revelation 20, verses 7 to 9. This is where Satan has been bound for a thousand years. The curse has been all but lifted from the earth and in the final analysis he's let out to test the hearts of mankind and the majority of men follow him. It gives the lie to those who say Satan made me do it or if I could see Jesus I would believe. If you want to know more about this we've just done a series of teachings on the book of Revelation which are available to you. We must believe therefore that the Bible is God's word and it's without error and it's historically and scientifically true and as such it is the supreme authority for both life and conduct. We may not necessarily understand it all but by faith we accept its inerrancy. God is more than able to protect his word. The Bible is called the canon of scripture the word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, K-A-N-O-N, which had a very specific meaning. It was a straight edge used in building in the ancient world, a measuring rod or ruler. It was used by a surveyor to see if a builder's wall was straight, upright and correctly proportioned. It was equivalent to today's plumb line or spirit level. The word came to mean a standard rule by which things were judged. So the word of God is a straight edge against which we should test our lives. As we come to it, we not only read it, it reads us. So let's start with some definitions. Submission, a definition. Subject, subjection or submission are mutually interchangeable words which come from the same root. In the Greek, it's the word hupotasso, H-U-P-O-T-A-S-S-O, which is primarily a military term, meaning to rank under, hupo, under, tasso, to arrange. Therefore, to arrange under, in rank or order. So when the Bible says, submit yourselves or be in subjection to, it is saying in effect, get in rank, get in order. And the dictionary definition of subject is rule. Under the control of somebody or something, such as a ruler or a law, and obliged to obey. A subject nation. A, re, re, a related word is hupako, H-U-P-A-K-O-E, which is to listen with a view to obedience. Again, the prefix hupa, H-U-P-A, which is under. We're listening with a view to doing what is being said. Hooper Co. Submission and obedience go together. Loving submission and willingness to obey. Hopefully that's what we'll be doing today. Submitting our hearts to the Word of God. The word submit itself is Hooper K-O, H-U-P-E-I-K-O, which is to retire or withdraw. Again, hupo under, ako to yield. Therefore, to yield under, to submit, 
is seen metaphorically in Hebrews 13:17, where it's used of the body submitting to getting in rank under the spiritual guides in the church and it says this obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you notice please for whom it will be unprofitable not for the leaders but for you dictionary definition of submit yield to somebody to give in to somebody's authority control or demands to agree to undergo something to defer to another's knowledge judgment or experience from the 14th century Latin submitere, literally to send under, from mitere to send, which is the source of English mission. And submit is a word which probably causes Christians the most problems. In this study we will be looking at submission to authorities, the government that God has placed over us and the laws of the land. We will have a look to see whether what is in place in this country lines up with the Word of God and if not, why it doesn't. In looking at this subject we will also examine the principles of anarchy and rebellion and what they are and why they're there and operate so strongly within us and the society in which we find ourselves. Next month we'll be doing an in-depth examination of the whole subject of anarchy and rebellion when we look at society. But capital punishment now. Capital punishment is a prickly, controversial and some ways very difficult subject. Capital punishment in our land was abolished for murder in 1965. Although never applied it remained on the statute book for certain other offences such as treason until 1998. Although the law has abolished the killing of one person lawfully for the act of murder, it's still a subject that has a lot of debate in Parliament from time to time. While some people may wish to see this punishment reinstated, there is another lobby that speak out against it, and there are many Christians who would not want to see this law brought back onto the statute books. However, although we will look at both sides of this argument, the only view which really counts is what does God say about it? Whatever he says is the view that we need to take. This may mean that you'll have to do some rethinking, repenting, changing of your mind. So let's have a look first at the two opposing views. Both sides think their view is right. So the first thing we need to do is to look at why they think the way they do. There are four main points on both sides. Let's look at those who are opposed to it first. They say capital punishment does not harmonise with the love of God. They say God is love and a God who is all loving like our God would have nothing to do with forcibly taking a person's life. They would say that it is against the character of God. Capital punishment cannot be allowed. That's the first one. Number two, capital punishment cannot be allowed because mistakes are made and people who have done nothing wrong are by mistake put to death. If one person is put to death by mistake, that's enough to make it not good enough. 
So it follows, if you don't have capital punishment, these mistakes can't happen. And that, of course, is a very powerful argument. They would also say capital punishment does not hold to the sanctity of life. Finally, they would observe that capital punishment does not deter crime and as such it serves no useful purpose whatsoever. So those are the four main points of those people who say that capital punishment is wrong. On the other hand, those who speak for capital punishment today would say this. Opposing capital punishment means you are siding with evil, and evil flourishes when good men do nothing. Number two, if there is no capital punishment, you are showing more concern and regard today for the criminal than you are for the victim. They say the criminal's life is protected, whereas the victim was given no such choice. That, too, is a powerful argument. They would say no capital punishment weakens our legal system. In other words, you have pulled the teeth from our law and there's now no ultimate, ultimate deterrent or bite. Finally, they would say, if you do not have capital punishment, you encourage murder and violence generally. So those are the four main points of those who support capital punishment. I should add also that of those who support capital punishment, often there is a need for revenge that runs through their objections. As Bible believers, we can see that both points of view are wrong biblically because the main point which is missing from both the arguments is what's God's view on all this? Very often people, even Christians, take the humanistic viewpoint rather than looking at what the Bible says. As Christians, we should not base our views on anything, including capital punishment, on what we feel about any given subject but on what the Word of God says. So it isn't a question of who is right and who is wrong or who has the strongest case, but what does the Bible say? To answer this question, we need to go right back to the beginning, to the seedbed of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, Genesis 1, 28 and 29. Verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seeds, to you it shall be for food. Here we see Adam was to have dominion over the animal kingdom. And at this point, he is vegetarian. So this is Adam's mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion and eat seeds. All goes quite well until mankind becomes so corrupt and degenerate after the fall of Adam that God has to bring the universal flood upon the earth in judgment. And in Genesis 9, 1-3, we see God speaking to Noah after the waters of the flood have subsided. Noah and his family are the only people left now on the earth to repopulate it, and here is Noah's mandate. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. 
I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Verses 1 and 2 are exactly the same commandment God gave to Adam in Genesis 1, 28 and 29. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. But wait, there's a change regarding what he can eat. Now in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. And in verse 4 he qualifies this, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Verse 3 sees the start of the changes in the command God gives to Noah. Man can now eat meat. Before the flood mankind was not permitted to eat meat, they were vegetarian. After the flood things changed. Before the flood animals did not eat one another, Roses did not bear thorns, weeds did not grow, man did not sweat, nor did he get sick. Sorry, it was not before the flood, it was before the fall. The fall brought about all these changes, and now God issues a decree that meat is on the menu. This is the first reference to capital punishment, as we shall see. So after the flood, meat was given to man for food, and meat eating today is quite all right. But there is a rule regarding the eating of meat that we in Britain still keep today. It's strange, isn't it? When we are so far from God, we still instinctively carry out his requirements in this regard. Genesis 9, 4, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. We still drain our meat in accordance with Genesis 9, 4. Had you ever wondered why we drained meat? Well, there's your answer. So now we're coming to the verses that really interest us in this study, Genesis 9, 5 and 6. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. These verses concern the life of human beings, and they are unequivocal. That is, they allow for no doubt or misinterpretation. God has made himself very, very clear on this point, and this is why every person conceived or born on the face of the earth has the image of God on them. This is what it means. God is stating ownership here. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Notice too that the life is in the blood and God alone owns life. God is teaching respect for him and respect for each other in terms of ownership and image. Every person has a dignity that comes from God. Every person has dignity in God's eyes conferred on them by God himself because they bear his image and likeness. Not because of what or who they are or what they do or how clever they are, but because of what God has made them. It does not matter whether you are a tramp or a king. Both are equal in God's sight because he made them. It is the value of people that makes the Christian culture different from any other culture on the face of the earth. 
We of all people should be the ones who live with honour and respect for others, whether we agree with them or not. From this scripture we clearly can see that God will demand an account from every person for the death of another person because everyone bears the image of God upon them. That's why in the Bible if you see another person being murdered and you stand by, you are held as guilty as the murderer before God and he will demand an account from you because it was up to you to try to prevent that murder taking place and not stand idly by watching what is happening. Whilst I was doing this study, I suddenly remembered Moses killing the Egyptian. I had a problem for a moment. So I prayed and sought the Lord, and as usual, when I least expected it, he answered. And this was what he said. Moses' killing of the Egyptian came into this category. He didn't stand idly by, but defended one of his own countrymen. If you know the story, he was subsequently accused by a Hebrew slave of the murder and he did a runner. We will look at cities of refuge which God provided for such eventualities later because this actually came into the term of manslaughter. Moses' crime was not a crime but killing during prevention of a crime which makes it manslaughter which is a completely different thing. Exactly the same principle applies regarding animals. If an animal kills someone, God demands that animal should be put to death. Something we really do need to get in our thinking is that God is a God of principle. The way he's done something in the past is the way he will always do it. We saw this when we did our foundational study of Revelation. God is consistent. You always know where you are with him. You never know what he's going to do but you know the principles upon which he does things. So what do we see from this verse? What happens when a murder takes place? Capital punishment. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. You couldn't have it much clearer than that, could you? This has nothing to do with vengeance. This is God's righteous judgment. And indeed, there must be no motive for vengeance in it whatsoever. This is the biblical principle, a life for a life. God says putting someone in prison for 30 years does not pay the price for a life because that puts a value on life and life is priceless. It is not ours to give and it is not ours to take away. In this context I do not propose to address the abortion issue in this teaching but consider this scripture in the light of our abortion on demand policy. It is murder. Did you know that the shedding of innocent blood defiles the land if it is not cleansed? All life is God's, all of it. Only he has the right to take it. He feels very strongly when someone interferes with the creation of life. I'm not talking about birth control here or the taking of life, but in Genesis 38, 8-10, Onan, a man called Onan, refuses to consummate his marriage in the way that God designed, and God kills him. 
God wanted a people for himself and this man was refusing to play his part in it. Just have a look at the story sometime. Um, it just takes him out of it. Really quite interesting. When you imprison someone for premeditated murder, you put a value on the person who was murdered. That value is the price it costs to imprison the offender for 30 or 35 years to take away their freedom. Let's say it's a million pounds. What you're saying is, when that million pounds is spent, that's paid the cost of the life. Not so. Even without the word of God, we can see that's not right. The only thing that will satisfy God's righteousness is to replace one priceless thing with another. So Jesus had to come and die for us. One priceless thing for another. Right the way through the Bible, you will see the principle, a life for a life. Another thing we see from verse 6 is that God doesn't remove the murderer. He actually demands that society take responsibility for that. That's our mandate, human responsibility. The institution of human government. One of the things that God did after the flood was to institute what we call human government on the earth. This was established to carry out God's righteous requirements on earth. After the flood, man had the responsibility to see that justice was done according to God's standard. And this verse tells us what the role of government is. It is to resist evil in the land and to deal with that evil. That is actually what the role of government is. Government must have judges and police and an army at their disposal and that is part of their God-given mandate. When we cover the doctrine of war, you will remember there were, after the flood, four God-given institutions and the institution of human government was one. If you want to see more of this, you need to get passing the baton nine, the doctrine of war, and have a look in there. What God is saying here is, unlike before the flood, when it was God and God alone who dealt with evildoers, now he's delegating that authority to man. Men were to be appointed to deal with evil in society. Men are now going to carry out capital punishment. That doesn't mean that individual men are to do it. It's not a lynch mob. It means a plurality of men to carry out this delegated responsibility. It's not a license for man to take the law into his own hands. This is people in positions of authority. These are people delegated by God who will judge a man for his sin and carry out the sentence. Clearly then God has instituted government and that is what is meant by national government. So a king, a prince, a prime minister, a member of the police force, a magistrate or a judge, the authorities over us are God's ministers in a society. It's not saying that they are born again or anything like that, but they are God's ministers within a society. What's happening in this country and indeed globally is that we have humanism developing at an alarming rate. A definition of humanism is a belief in human-based morality. 
a system of thought that is based on the values, characteristics and behaviour that are believed to be best in human beings rather than on any supernatural authority. The secular, cultural and intellectual movement of the Renaissance that spread through Europe as a result of the rediscover of the arts and philosophy of the ancient Greeks and Romans. The source of that information was the Encarta Dictionary. If you look up humanism, that's what you'll come up with. Humanism then is the denial of any power or moral value superior to that of humanity. The rejection of religion in favour of a belief in the advancement of humanity by its own efforts. The Tower of Babel all over again. This is setting the stage for the end time, the unveiling of the Antichrist. Everything is moving inexorably towards the culmination, the climax of the history of mankind. The stage is set and in God's timing the Antichrist will walk onto it. Humanism will believe anything but the truth and will tolerate anything but righteousness. It's a very dangerous thing. Humanism and 666 and here's a few interesting little facts. In the book of Revelation we see the number which will represent the fullness of man's iniquity, sinfulness. 666. The cup of man's iniquity iniquity and the dictionary definition of that is wickedness evil sin vice injustice crime extreme immorality will be full and it will be a time for judgment God's righteous judgment that's what the book of Revelation is all about God's judgment when mankind's sin is full is complete when it's complete sin has to be judged it is this exaltation of man which is the force which will finally give rise to the Antichrist whose name is the number of man, 666. He will be the personification of evil, so God uses the number of completion as simple as that. This is the reason behind the number. It is totally 100% man or humanism, fallen man's idea of government. Numerically, his name will probably add up to 666 as well. Is Mystery Babylon unveiled? Man was created on the sixth day, and 666 is the culmination, the fullness of man's rebellion against God. Just as 13 times 13 times 13 was the culmination of evil when Jesus was crucified on the cross. This is in numerical terms what was written above Jesus' head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, when the totality of mankind's sin was laid on him at Calvary. Numbers are very important in the Bible and have a significance all their own, spiritual arithmetic. Both Hebrew and Greek letters have numerical value. Perhaps we'll do a study sometime, it's very interesting. The name Jesus adds up to 888, which is the number of resurrection, so be encouraged. Have another one. The devil who is called Satan adds up again to 13 times 13 times 13. Fullness of sin, which was laid on Jesus at the cross. But of course, if you don't accept his offer of free pardon, then judgment comes. It has to. 
So the role of national government is to resist evil in the land and to deal with that evil. That is the biblical role of government. So they must have judges and police to deal with the evil in society. But before the flood, God did the judging. Prior to the flood, man had no right to take another's life and there was no such thing as capital punishment. Genesis 4.8 Now Cain talked with his brother and it came to pass that when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The first murder. One of Adam's sons. Cain kills his brother because he is jealous of God's acceptance of Abel's offering and rejection of his own. He gets Abel in a field, raises the knife and shouts, you want blood, have some of this. You will ask how I know that's the way he killed Abel. In Matthew 23:35, Jesus speaks about the blood of Abel crying from the ground. Before the flood, God dealt with this. He would not allow mankind to carry out judgment on each other. He did it. After the flood, had Cain killed Abel, he would have been put to death by the delegated authority that God gave to man. In Genesis 9, we have the role of government. The duty of every government is to carry out God's righteous judgments in the land, but it must never be in vengeance or anger. That's why any person who carries out the execution must be someone who's not involved at all, the official executioner. The person carrying out the execution is God's representative, carrying out God's righteous judgment. Exodus 21, 12-14, in my Bible it's headed up rights of persons. Verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he didn't lay in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee, city of refuge. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbour to kill him with guile or treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Capital punishment. These verses support it for premeditated murder. But there is also provision for accidents. In verse 13 we see that there is provision for accidental death where the axe head flies off and hits someone and he dies. Notice that God allows the death to happen. He doesn't cause it, he allows it. This verse is also saying that if someone dies in an accident, God bears the responsibility for it. So if you have a car accident and someone is killed, God bears the responsibility for that. You are totally free from all guilt, unless of course you were drunk and drove straight at them. Verses 12 and 14 of Exodus 21 have nothing to do with vengeance, but deal with God's righteous standards. Numbers 35, 30 to 33. Notice that the Bible has a lot to say about this subject. Numbers 35, verse 30. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be surely put to death. And you should take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. 
So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Verse 33 is why God demands the death of a murderer. This verse is saying that every innocent victim that has been murdered, if their life is not fully accounted for to God's satisfaction, the land in which they died is polluted. And God looks at the government and the people of that land and they are under his curse automatically because if they do not put the murderers to death, they are not upholding God's righteous judgments. The more innocent victims that die, the more their blood cries from the ground and God hears it. So it's a nonsense in our land to think that we are fulfilling God's righteous standards by locking people up in prison for a number of years. What this means is that since 1965 our land has been getting worse and worse in God's sight and gets worse as it goes on. This land of Great Britain cannot be cleansed until we see a reintroduction of righteous laws and capital punishment. This is not my view. This is what God says. You may say, and someone said to me recently, what about Jesus? Meaning that Jesus was meek and mild and God was a God of wrath in the Old Testament, but he's a God of love in the New, and surely he abolished the death penalty. Beloved, one of the things about God is that he never, ever changes. He's immutable. So he must be the same in the New Testament as in the Old. The whole problem lies with our understanding of the scriptures, God's love and God's righteousness and our humanistic approach to the word of God. In Psalm 50 verse 21 he says, You thought I was altogether like you. In this psalm, which is a psalm speaking of the Lord being the judge of all people, he calls us to account for casting my word behind you, consenting with thieves and partaking with adulterers. Look it up sometime and you can see for yourselves. Where then in the New Testament do we find support for capital punishment? Matthew 23, 34 and 35, and Jesus here is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, condemning them for their unrighteousness. Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And Romans 13, 1-4, the classic passage which shows us exactly how to conduct ourselves under the government of our country. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. 
But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Remember, human government came in, in Genesis 9, after the flood. Verse 2 is not saying you cannot say, this is in Romans now, when a government is wrong. It's saying you must not be anti-establishment or revolutionary. You will never be blessed as a Christian if you are anti-establishment or a revolutionary. The best way to see a government removed if they are anti-God, opposed to him, is to pray about it. If you see things are wrong, pray about them. Do not go on marches to demonstrate about them. Verse 3, and here we have the role of government. At the time Paul is writing, you actually have a madman on the throne of the Roman Empire, Caligula, totally insane. But despite this, Paul writes that government must be maintained and prayed for. Verse 4 is the one we want. It's the verse that speaks of capital punishment. He does not bear the sword in vain. The word sword is not the Greek word for a regimental sword. The word here is the word that was used for capital punishment. This verse is saying that government has the right to capital punishment and it should be used when necessary. By the way, everybody who's ever written on the book of Romans agrees that chapter 13 verse 4 is a reference to capital punishment. In Acts 25, 9-11 we see Paul before Festus, having been brought before him by the high priest and chief men of the Jews. Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favour, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Then Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I do not object to dying. But there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me. No one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul is saying here in verse 11, I am willing to die if I have done anything wrong. He's not saying I'm a Christian and capital punishment is not of God because God is love. Paul accepts that capital punishment is correct and he is prepared to die if necessary. God demands that if a person kills another person deliberately they are to lose their own life. He further demands that the sentence is to be carried out by the government of the land. That is a simple statement of what the Bible teaches about capital punishment. God is love. It's all based on God's righteous standards, his character and the other characteristics of him, but that's not enough. I do want to deal with those who say it's out of character with God, the people who have problems with capital punishment. One, they say that capital punishment cannot be in harmony with God because God is love. With this lobby, the God is love emphasis is all. They leave out all the other characteristics of God and major on love. Well, yes, God is love and that is absolutely true, but he's also absolute righteousness and justice. Jesus would not have had to go to the cross 
if there was only the issue of love at stake. In fact, it would make the cross a nonsense. If God was only love, he would have said, oh, enjoy yourselves, I understand, I'll overlook everything, I just love you to bits, I don't care what you do, I just love you. We are accepted in the Beloved. We are accepted because our sin has been paid for by Jesus and for no other reason. God does love us, but he wouldn't let us go to the lake of fire if we hadn't believed on the price paid for us, the shed blood of Jesus. In his absolute righteousness, holiness and justice, God is offended by sin. And because he is absolutely righteous, sin has to be dealt with. And Jesus was the only one found good enough to pay that price. Beloved, sin is not something we do. It is something we are. In Adam all die. In Christ all live. We are covered with the leprosy of sin until we are cleansed with the blood of Jesus. Bits of us keep dropping off. Let me show you how love operates in the case of capital punishment. If a person who has committed premeditated murder is sentenced to death and during the time they have before that sentence is carried out they receive Jesus as Saviour and Lord, God forgives them the crime they have committed and such is the love of God that the moment they die they are face to face with the Lord. You have an example of the thief on the cross we are here justly, he said, but this man is innocent. A real-life example in our day and time would be von Ribbentrop, one of the Nazi war criminals who put thousands of Jews to death. Three days before his death sentence was due to be carried out, he was led to the Lord and received Jesus as his saviour. He was still put to death because the law of the land had to be fulfilled. But he was face to face with Jesus and you will meet him when you get there. That is grace. That is love. That is justice. That is holiness. As I said before, Luke 23, 39-43 and the story of the thief on the cross. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was murdered. So the second uh, objection. Human agencies are fallible and innocent people may die. This is the second objection. That's true. That's why God has always insisted on two or three eyewitnesses to the event. One witness was not enough. Circumstantial evidence was not enough. There had to be two or three eyewitnesses. And there's something else here too while we're here. The worst case of an innocent person being put to death for a crime they did not commit was our Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
This was the grossest miscarriage of justice ever recorded. He knows exactly what we go through, even to that. So God allows in his wisdom what he could easily prevent by his power. The third objection, capital punishment does not hold to the sanctity of life. Does abortion? Capital punishment properly executed holds fully to the sanctity of life in a way that nothing else does. Fourth objection, capital punishment is not a de deterrent. That's actually totally irrelevant because it's not the question. The question is one of God's righteous standards. Now, the study is not quite complete because there are certain people who know the Bible and they will say to you, you must not use the Bible as a basis for capital punishment. And they give three reasons to support their objections to the biblical view of capital punishment. Reason number one, capital punishment disagrees with the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. Number two, you cannot get capital punishment from the Bible because if you do, there are many other offences that are found in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And they say, um, if, murder is a, if murder is a capital offence, then you've got to start putting children to death and homosexuals and they'll list some of the other offences and they say that capital punishment is wrong and you must not use the Bible as a basis to support it. Number three, Jesus himself, they say, opposed capital punishment. These are valid objections and we must face things like this and not try to skirt round them. So let's have a look at them. Capital punishment is against the sixth commandment. Exodus 20 verse 13, you shall not kill. In the King James Version, you have the word kill. And the Hebrew word for kill here is used 49 times in the Old Testament and it means premeditated murder. The NIV has murder, as does the New King James Version. If anyone would like to debate you on this point, you can ask them to explain Exodus 21, 12 and 14. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And verse 14, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbour to kill him with guile or treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So that's an easy one to deal with. By the way, only two types of killing are acceptable as far as God is concerned. Capital punishment and warfare. And we learnt this second one when we studied the doctrine of war. Second objection. There are many other offences that are capital punishment offences. In Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, you will find a total of up 40 other capital offences. But the other capital offences which they cite relate specifically to the nation of Israel. Israel was a theocracy, which meant God was king over Israel and God was the lawmaker. They didn't have a government, they had him, as we will in the millennium. Those of you who attended the recent course on Revelation will be aware of this. So those offences related solely to Israel. Remember, the prohibition regarding unlawful killing or murder was made before the nation of Israel existed. This prohibition was given to Noah just after the flood. 
let's just remind ourselves of the scripture. Genesis 9, 5 and 6. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So what we have in Genesis 9 is for all nations. It is a universal prohibition. Law and a theocracy. What about those people who want to lump together all the other times when God said the offence was unto death? To do this, we must take a little detour and look at what it means to live under a theocracy. If God is your king, it's a capital offence to worship a foreign god or an idol. That would be a bit difficult in this day and age to enforce, particularly in Britain, with our mixed culture and religions. From this you'll see that these prohibitions only related to Israel. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this was their marriage covenant, remember Israel is the wife of Jehovah, just as the church is his bride, speaking of relationship here, not sexuality, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. What God is saying here is that Israel as a nation would be set apart from all the other nations to be his nation, a holy nation. And God established in Israel what we would call a theocracy. Israel rejected God as king and wanted a king like other nations around them. And you can find that in 1 Samuel 8, 1 to 8. It's where we started with Saul being anointed as king because they had rejected God himself as king. In most nations there are two capital punishment offences but the nations who keep these are getting less all the time. Those of you with a computer have a look in Wikipedia, uh, the online encyclopedia under capital punishment and it will show you how nations are stopping this all around the world today. So the two capital punishment offences in this country used to be murder and treason. In Britain today, treason is no longer a capital offence. It was abolished in 1998 and as I said before, in 1965 the law on capital punishment was done away with. I'm just going to quote now from what I found on Wikipedia. Among countries around the world, almost all European and many Pacific area states, including Australia, New Zealand and Canada, have abolished capital punishment. In Latin America, most states have completely abolished the use of capital punishment, while some countries, such as Brazil, allow for capital punishment only in exceptional circumstances, such as treason committed during wartime. The United States, the federal government and 36 of the states, Guatemala, most of the Caribbean, and the majority of democracies in Asia, e.g. Japan and India, and Africa, e.g. Botswana and Zambia, retain it. In South Africa, which is probably the most developed African nation and which has been a democracy since 1994, does not have the death penalty. This fact is 
currently quite controversial in that country due to the high levels of crime, including murder and rape. As I said, that information was from Wikipedia, very useful source of information. But if you lived in a theocracy, these are a few examples of the rules that you would live under. A. Sins that come in a category that refuse to worship God as he demands. When God is king, things have to be done his way as he requires, and if you refuse to worship God as he required, then it was a treasonable offence because you were overthrowing his law and order. So, in a theocracy, theocracy failure to circumcise your children was a the capital offence. Mixing holy oil when you were not allowed to was also a treasonable offence. B. Sins that are idolatry. If God is your king and you worship a foreign god, that's treason because you're worshipping another god and in so doing, you're not doing what the king demanded. There are many offences in the category of treason and also capital offences such as homosexuality, but again, it's not so in society today. So these other 40 odd crimes were specifically applying to the nation of Israel and not to us because they were under a theocracy at the time. So there is your answer to objection number two. And finally, the third objection, that Jesus himself was un against capital punishment. They say Jesus said it was wrong and they quote John 8, 1 to 11. They quote other passages as well, but I'll use this one as an example. Very familiar passage here. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. But early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to a woman, Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Several issues here, not the least that Jesus is speaking to Jews and the Bible is a Jewish book and we must always remember this if we are to rightly divide the word of God. Jesus did not say no to capital punishment. On the contrary, what he said was, if you are without sin yourself, you carry out the sentence. Perfectly biblical perfectly as laid down in their law. Adultery was a, a punishment, offence punishable by stoning, if you were caught in it.
What he was saying to them was, this is not applicable with you as witnesses because your testimony is suspect. They had a hidden agenda, which was to accuse Jesus in order that they might do away with him. Jesus found them out. They were using this woman to try to get to Jesus and he sees right through what they're trying to do and turns their accusation back on themselves and they walk away. So it's not a problem passage. Jesus is not saying the law has been done away with. He's saying you are not fit witnesses, nor are you fit to carry out the sentence. And they knew it and they walked away. So people who say that Jesus spoke out against capital punishment are incorrect. The law was given to Israel because the nations around them had no form of justice and the punishment of times was cruel and didn't fit the crime. For instance, if a boy was found stealing a loaf of bread, he could be flayed alive. Israel was intended to be a light to the nations, drawing them to see the one true God and his righteousness. Justice must not be carried out in vengeance. The Bible brings true justice into the world. So we see Jesus in Matthew 5, 38 to 42, and this is actually another passage that people will use or try to use to say that Jesus was against capital punishment. In it he says this, verse 38, chapter 5. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Here he is quoting Deuteronomy 19, 21, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who, him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. The whole passage is about retaliation. It's about letting the punishment fit the crime. Jesus starts off by quoting from Deuteronomy 19:21, Your eye shall not pity, but life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In other words, the punishment must fit the crime. If a life has been taken, a life must be paid. Let the punishment fit the crime. The clear word of scripture is that if a, woman, if a person commits premeditated murder, they must be put to death by the state. This is done without vengeance or anger, and in no way is capital punishment to be thought of as a deterrent. It is there to meet the righteous requirements and standards of God. To make our decision then, let's look at what it would have been like to be under a theocracy and see how much better that system was that Israel had than our own is. Israel had no police force. It was the responsibility of every citizen to act as a policeman. If you saw evil being perpetrated, you had to deal with it. God's system produced maximum involvement and responsibility of the individual. They didn't have big courts like we do. They had many small courts and the trial was held as soon as possible after the offence. No one could be under the threat of capital punishment unless there were two or three eyewitnesses. One witness was not enough. God also put restraint in his law on the witnesses. The execution in those days was carried out by stoning and those eyewitnesses had to throw the first stone. 
A false witness was dealt with in a very good way. If there was a deliberately false witness given, whatever the punishment the accused was to bear, you got it yourself. Now, as far as I can see, that is the ultimate deterrent. If a crime was committed in your locality and the person who did the crime was never found, the locality had to make a lump sum payment to the victim's family. That would make people keep a watch as to who was doing the crime because if you didn't catch the culprit, it would cost you. That seems to me a very clever system. If there was vandalism in your local area, you had to pay if the culprit wasn't caught. So you as a citizen were the local police force and this system worked wonderfully well. God made judgment real and he also made sure that the punishment fitted the crime exactly. If murder was involved, the person who did the murder was put to death. If the crime required corporal punishment, beating, that was applied, but justly. And the third sentence was fining. If you let your neighbour's ox fall into a ditch and did nothing, ox for ox, it would cost you. Those were the three sentences, no imprisonment. Today in our society we have lost the fact that judgment is real and that one day people will have to stand before God and give an account for how they've lived. Not the believer, I hasten to say, only your works will be judged. I'm talking here about the unbeliever. So with these sentences, judgment was real. Everybody knew what the system was and equally knew what the punishment would be. Imprisonment is anti-biblical. If you put an evildoer among other evildoers, they'll be twice as bad when they come out. The Bible gives us sentences, and if we were to apply these things, beating, fining, and letting them go, the Bible says they would not do it again. Of course, that doesn't apply where murder is concerned. So there you have God's spin on justice and capital punishment in particular. You should now have enough information uh, to be able to make up your own mind what you believe about all this. God bless you so much and thank you for listening. I pray that the Lord will show you from his word what is the truth here. The other thing I just want to say is that there's no copyright on this material currently, so please feel free to distribute it in its entirety to anyone who is interested but I would prefer that it was in its entirety so that it doesn't get taken out of context with such a sensitive subject. God bless you all richly. Amen.